Jesus warned us to be on guard against every form of greed. And last week we looked at two of them, coveting and hoarding. We saw coveting illustrated by the man who wanted Jesus to make his brother give him a larger portion of the family inheritance. And we noted that coveting is wanting something that belongs to someone else and thinking we deserve it more than do they. Hoarding was illustrated by a parable about a farmer who had a really good year. But rather than seek ways to be generous, to be a generous steward of God's blessing, he decided just to build bigger barns so he could keep everything for himself. And I think we all recognize coveting and hoarding as forms of greed. But a third form, evidenced by anxiety, is not as easily recognized. But that's what we come to this morning. I think the reason it's not recognized as a form of greed is because not all forms of anxiety are based on greed. If you're anxious about others and their welfare, it's probably not an expression of greed. But if you're worried about yourself, it may very well be a form of greed. And that's what we come to in the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 22 through 26. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Now, I think we are all familiar with this teaching of Jesus on anxiety. He not only spoke it here, he also included it in his Sermon on the Mount. But what we may not have noticed is that on both occasions, he prefaced this teaching with the words, for this reason, I say to you. And when we find those words, we have to go back in the text to find out what the reason was. Why did he say, for this reason? Well, it actually followed these words in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And he says, for this reason, I say to you. In our text for today, those words followed the warning given at the close of the parable of the rich farmer. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. On both occasions, Jesus was connecting this teaching on anxiety to warnings about greed. And he did so because the anxiety he wanted them to avoid reflected a spirit of greed. A greed that can be seen in anxiety even about food and clothing. What am I 
going to eat? What am I going to wear? Now, if you don't have much, you might think worrying about your next meal is justified. But being anxious about what you will eat and what you will wear is actually pointless. Jesus made it clear that it takes more than food to keep you alive. It takes more than clothing to keep you warm and safe and secure. So if we're going to worry about the necessities of life, we might as well go ahead and worry about everything that might endanger us or cut our life short. There's no end to the number of things we could worry about. So basically, Jesus says, worrying about food and clothing is pointless. But more to the point, it's self-centered. You know, the farmer said to his soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. His greed was reflected in the overconfidence that came from hoarding. But being fearful that you might not have enough is also a reflection of greed. It comes from thinking you don't have what you might need tomorrow. Jesus called the farmer a fool for thinking he had secured his own future. But it's just as foolish to think your heavenly Father won't see to it that your needs are met. Jesus has already assured us that we're worth more than the sparrows. To God. Now he says, consider the ravens. They don't sow nor reap. And unlike the rich farmer, they don't store up grain in barns. But God feeds them. And again, Jesus reminds us that we are more valuable than the birds. And if God feeds them, he will make sure we have enough to eat. Now, I don't think that means that we shouldn't sow or reap or store up for the future. You know, birds weren't designed to do such, but we are. We are. And even birds have to work. They hunt for their food. They don't just sit on branches and expect God to drop worms in their mouths. They have to work. But ultimately, God is the one who provides for them and for us. So if we're doing what God expects us to do, there's no need to worry about our next meal. Besides, worrying won't add a bit to our life's span. Now, the text is a little confusing here because it speaks of a cubit. A cubit is 18 inches, but a lifespan is not measured in inches. And some have therefore followed an alternative meaning and have suggested that Jesus was not talking about a lifespan, but someone's height. We don't really know for sure. Sorry, Blake. But the point is, both things are out of our control, right? They're out of our control. And it's therefore useless to worry about them. All we accomplish by worrying about even the necessities of life is demonstrate a greedy spirit. So how do we alleviate that greed? Well, I think he's hinted at it. Now he's going to go on to tell us straight out. Verses 27 through 30. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. 
But if God so arrays the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. Now, why do we find it so hard to trust God with the bare necessities of life when nature itself testifies to His generosity? Have we ever seen a flower? You know, God didn't have to clothe the fields with beauty the way He did. He could have simply covered them with utilitarian grasses. Instead, he gave us flowers that surpass in beauty anything that King Solomon ever wore. So why? Why did he do that? Why did he make even the wild flowers that were gathered along with the grasses and used to light fires and furnaces so beautiful? I think Jesus through whom all things were created, would have us understand that our God is not a God of bare necessities. He's a God who goes to excess and understands the importance of beauty. He didn't just clothe our world. He clothed it beautifully. And since we are of more value to Him than anything else He has created, and we are the reason He created what He did, can't we trust Him to cover us beautifully as well? And to be honest, most of us don't just worry about being covered. We worry about how we look. Some of us worry more than others, don't we, Blake? You know, we don't just want clothing. We want nice clothing. And God is not like a father I know who really didn't understand his daughter's desire for guest jeans when she was in junior high. He doesn't wait until he finds a pair on sale because they're lavender and no one wants them and expects them to make her happy. Now, kids, listen up here. That's not to say that your parents should feel obligated to provide you with all the latest in designer clothing. Our budgets are limited. God's isn't. And besides, parents must be very careful not to give their children the idea that they deserve the best of everything. Doing so just fosters a spirit of entitlement which leads to greed and takes away the gratitude that should come when something special is given. The point Jesus was making is that God, who clothes the lilies in splendor that exceeds Solomon's, will do more than just provide cover for our bodies. He's not going to dress us in rags. He values beauty as much if not more than we do. So there's no need to worry about it. There's no need to obsess about what we will wear or eat or drink. Those who don't know our Heavenly Father worry about such things. 
We don't have to. Because we know he knows we need them. And he will provide them. He always has. For as the psalmist observed long ago, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. There's no need to strive after the things God has promised to give us. But if we'll trust him, greed and the anxiety that accompanies it will be alleviated. In fact, seeking him and his kingdom is the answer to greed. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Instead of seeking after the things that God knows we need, we need only to seek after God himself and his kingdom. And if we'll do that, he will give us what we need. Through the sacrifice of Christ, he has made it possible for us to be made acceptable to him. So if we seek after him through faith in his son, he will accept us. He will welcome us into his fold and will make us part of his flock. And as the good shepherd, he will provide for our every need. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about it. Why do we worry like those who don't know our Heavenly Father? There's no point. There's no need. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to covet and hoard and be anxious. We can trust him. And as we noted last week, we express our confidence in his provision through tithing. We have confidence in the promise Malachi relayed to us. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. I take that promise at face value. I always have. And God has blessed. He always has. Tithing makes us realize that we don't provide for ourselves. Tithing makes us realize who owns everything. Tithing is an act of trust. found it interesting in the newspaper just this morning. There's an article on tithing. The sad thing is it said that the average tithe is 2.3%. Now, obviously, they don't understand the definition of tithing. <laughs> A tithe is 10%. That's something we can do for the Lord. In fact, Malachi says that if we don't do that, we are robbing God. But the amazing thing is we can even go beyond that in expressing our faith. And Jesus 
kind of says that in our text here. We can sell our possessions and give to charity. Jesus told the rich young ruler that he had to do that if he wanted to know the kingdom. And he holds that out here as something we need to give consideration to. And some have actually done it. In 1978, the Wittenberg Door, a sometimes irreverent magazine that confronted Christians with their hypocrisies and inconsistencies, published their money issue. I think it was their best issue ever, and I've kept it for over 30 years. I've got the whole stack of them. That's on the top. And in it, they had two interviews that kind of gave both sides to this money issue. They had an interview with a man named Larry Holbin and then with a man named C. Davis Warehouser. They introduced Holbin's interview with these words. Nineteen months ago, at the age of 31, Larry Holbin, screenwriter, left his upper-middle-class existence in West Los Angeles and became a Catholic worker on L.A.'s Skid Row. Several months before that time, Larry, an Episcopalian, had begun serving as a volunteer at the Catholic Workers' Community Soup Kitchen one day a week. The experience there caused him to wrestle with his own attitude on poverty and possessions. What I was doing there in the kitchen was really clashing with my lifestyle as I got to know some of the families. So my wife and I got rid of about 75% of our stuff, sold it, and moved out. I quit writing except for what I had already promised people, and then we joined the community. They used the profits of their stuff sale as seed money to open a nonprofit cooperative grocery store for primarily Mexican-American families in the neighborhood. Before the move, Larry had scripted films, The Hiding Place, among the most notable, television shows, and books. The first time any of the keepers, the authors of The Wittenberg Door, met Larry was at the premiere of The Hiding Place, where the dapper Holbin was outfitted in a tuxedo. The last time the keepers met the man, he was wearing well-used tennis shoes, green fatigue pants, and a non-tuxedo shirt. The interview was conducted in the store. The principals sat on boxes as trucks blasted down the street and Spanish-speaking people came into the store to purchase supplies. It's a long, long interview. But as you can imagine, Larry's interview focused on the call to sell our possessions. And give to charity. But his interview was then followed by one with C. Davis Warehouser, a member of the famous Warehouser business family, Lumber Paper, a man who had that year donated two and a half million dollars to mostly religious organizations. The essence of what he had to say follows this question. Some Christians believe that one of the major roles of Christians is to redistribute wealth. How do you react when you hear radical Christians talking about money? His response began, well, generally, I don't agree with them. I think for some it's right, like Borden of Yale, who chucked everything that he had and went to Africa to be a missionary. I have no quarrel with that at all. I'm sure he did what he felt he had to do. 
But I also feel that the management of wealth can be just as important as the distribution of it. If every wealthy Christian just distributed his wealth, the country would be worse off and the poor would be worse off. There's a new expression that's important, capital formation. We need capital to build plants. It costs up to $400 million now to build a paper mill. So where's that money going to come from? It's got to come from people who themselves have conserved capital. Otherwise, there's no place to get it. And these plants create employment. I think that applies to giving. To some, give everything you've got and go on the street. I flunked French two years in a row. And I knew I wasn't going to be a missionary. I was such a bashful introvert as a youngster that I couldn't talk to three people at once without panicking. So I knew I wasn't going to be a preacher. And suddenly the Lord seemed to be saying to me when I was working in a pulp mill, I want you to be a steward of resources. I knew that some trusts were going to come to me that had been set up years previously. But I remember then making out a check to the Multnomah School of the Bible for $500. I had never given over $10 to anything in my life. And that came so quickly on top of my decision to be a steward that I felt God was leading me. It just had to be the Lord's will. Since then, I have felt compelled to manage those gift trusts. I manage them and distribute the income, and now I'm distributing capital as well. So who's right here? Who's right? You know, Larry obeyed the Lord by selling his possessions and giving to charity. But Dave made a purse that doesn't wear out. Now, I think both sought to be obedient to Christ by what they did. And both found the answer to greed. They sought first the kingdom of God. They focused on building up treasure in heaven where no thief comes near or moth destroys. And they knew that where their treasure was, there would their hearts be also. I think we too can be free of greed. If we will just treasure the things of heaven more than the things of earth. And if we will, it will be easy to give our anxieties along with our hearts to the Lord.